to this message, you will be challenged and encouraged through God's Word. Here at Heartsease Family Life Church, it has always been our desire to see people's lives totally impacted and changed. His Word promises to accomplish that. For more information in regards to our church, you can call us at 225-274-1607 or visit us on the web at www.hflc.us. We look forward to hearing from you. Be blessed now as you listen to God's Word. of God today. Come on. Some people are putting their hands up ready to receive another gift. Like I was going, you ready to receive another gift? Oh yeah, over here. But we're so delighted that you're with us. Wow. Did we not have an awesome month last month? If you weren't here, it's because you were on vacation or you were way out of town or, or you backslid and moved back to New Orleans. But we had a great month last month talking about what? Expectancy, expecting God to do great things in my life. And I want to give you some breaking news tonight or today, and that is this. Are you ready for this? Expectancy did not finish July 31st. Come on, it went on into August. It's going to be waiting for us in September, October, November, December, January, February, March. Yes, I do know my months of the year. Expectancy is going to be waiting for us because God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond. And the last time I checked, he hasn't stopped doing it. Amen. So we're really excited about last month's series. You can follow it on podcast. You can get it off our website. Just really encourage you all to do that. But we're beginning a new series today calling A Fan or a Follower. Come on, let me get here a shout in the house. That was pathetic. Let me hear a shout in the house. Come on, there you go. Just encouraging everyone and asking the question, are you a fan Oh, really, are you a follower? And we're going to be talking about having a lunch date with Jesus today and just what that means for our lives. But here's our key scripture for our subject, for our series this month. And it comes from Mark 8, verse 34. It comes from the New Living Translation. You need binoculars to read it. But it says this, if you want to, te- to be my followers, guess what? You must, say with me, must. It's not a suggestion. It's not a question whether you should or not. It's a must. It's a commandment. You must what? You must turn from your selfish ways. You must take up your cross and follow me. Let me read that again. If any of you wants to be my followers, incidentally, the whole thrust of this message series is that we would not be a fan, but we would be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a follower of mine, Excuse me. You must turn from your selfish ways. You must take up your cross and follow me. So following God requires action. It's the first thing we see. If we're going to follow God, there's a movement that's required. We've got to do something. We can't just sit there as bumps on the log and say, well, God, I gave my life to you. Now what? God wants us to do things. God wants us to live for him. God wants it to be a daily walk with him. Is anyone in the house today? Just help me out. I just want, I just want to share with you, the louder you respond, the shorter I preach. So just help me out in the house today, okay? So what we've discovered is this, that to be a follower... There's some criteria that needs to be followed. 
It's not, well, I can just live the way I want and do whatever I want to do. God's word tells us here, plain and simply, that if we want to be a follower of Jesus, guess what we need to do? We've got to turn from our old ways. We've got to repent. We've got to ask God to forgive us. We've got to lay those things aside. And aren't you glad that God wants to take all that junk and stuff and the past and the mistakes and the failures? God says, let me just take all those, turn away, release those, give those to me. And then what does he say? And daily live for me. Take up your cross and follow me. So we see that in following God, it requires something of us. Requires something of us. We're going to turn to a scripture today that's called John 666. John 666. And I don't think by chance that 666, the mark of the beast, is recorded in Revelation. I don't think it's by chance that this verse, John 666, is as it says. Look at this. It says, From that time, Many of Jesus' disciples, those who followed Jesus, the word disciple means follower, those who confessed, professed to be followers of Jesus, hooked up with Jesus, those went back home and walked with him no more. So what happens? They had a fight, they had a disagreement, they fell out. I mean, what took place that those who once followed Jesus upped and left and never followed him Anymore. What could have happened for this turn of events? I want to look at it really quickly. I want to look at two days in like two minutes today. On the first day, you read in John 6, beginning in verse 1, a whole crowd of people showed up to meet Jesus. In fact, the Bible says or records them as 5,000 men. That was just men. That wasn't women and children. So there could have been 15, 20 plus people that showed up to hear Jesus, to be there. They sat with Jesus all day. He taught them great things. It was an awesome day, but they were getting hungry and the disciples wanted Jesus to feed them. And he says, how much food do we have and he feeds about 15 to 20,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish. I mean incredible. That's not our story. That's not our focus. I hate to almost jump over that, but that's incredible. That's what God did and he fed them with leftovers because he's what able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond. So then at the end of the day, he sends his disciples away, says, get in a boat, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to follow you shortly, but I'm going to dismiss the crowd. He dismisses the crowd, says, great day, love you all, take care, I'm leaving. And he goes up onto a mountain and pray. A lot of things happen. There's a storm, different things. But for the sake of time, we're going to jump to day number two. The crowd wakes up, they're rubbing their eyes, they're looking around, where's Jesus? He's nowhere to be seen, so what do they do? They go looking for him, they realise he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, so they get in boats and they go over to Capernaum and they find Jesus, they come in front of him and then this is where we pick up the story. Look what it says in verse 26, verse 26 of John 6, Jesus answered them, the crowd, those who had come to find him. He answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, every one of you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. In other words, Jesus is, he's figured them out. Let me say that one more time. He's figured them out. Because all they were looking for was another free meal. 
They were looking for the guy who fed them yesterday. They were looking for another meal. It's breakfast time. We're ready for our breakfast biscuits now. Come on, do something for us. But Jesus had it all figured out. And he said, listen, you are looking for me just because of you want something to eat. It's not about me, Jesus said, but it's about what you want me to give to you. And then Jesus lays it all out for them. And read the whole chapter when you get home. It's hard to cover it in just a few moments. But read it in verse 35. Jesus said to them these words. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Never hunger. And he who comes to me or believes in me shall never thirst. Never be in need. Never hunger. Never thirst. Why? Because Jesus said to them these words, I am everything that you need. I am everything that you need. But then we get to verse 66, the continuance of the story that we began with. And from that time, many left and never walked with Jesus anymore. Why? Because they just wanted the stuff. They just wanted the things that Jesus could give them, but they failed to realize who he really was. There was a lot of fans that day. Come on, but there were very few followers. And if you would read later, you don't see Jesus crying. You don't see Jesus getting upset. Of course he was upset when people left, but he's not running after them. He's not pleading with them. He's not giving the latest gimmick and the latest thing to try and entice them back. He's not sending his disciples and telling them, hey, we're going to have an ice cream social next Sunday, come back. He's not trying to do anything to get them back. He's let them go. Why? 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 Because we realize this, it's not the size of the crowd that Jesus is interested in, but it's the level of their commitment. It's the level of commitment that he's looking at in every one of our lives. Throughout the entirety of this series, we're going to say some things that may not make many friends. Some of the things I may say, you may not like me for it, but listen, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make followers. I'm here for people to follow God. And and, and don't get me wrong, we love you all and we want the best for you, but we love you enough to tell you the truth. To tell you the truth from God's word. And, and some of this stuff, some, you know, even as I was preparing this message and I'm writing it down, I'm thinking, God, that's tough stuff. <laughs> that's tough stuff. But that's the reality of the gospel. It's tough. Some of the stuff is tough. And that's why some people couldn't make the standard. They couldn't heed to that. And they just left and turned away and said, forget this. I don't want to be a part of this. There's some tough stuff that's still going to be required of us. But you know what? We need to determine what the state of our relationship is with God. You know, today, most of you walked in with your shirts on. Most of you today walked in as a fan. But my goal is that every one of you will walk out as a follower. That every one of you would walk out totally committed and given your life to Christ because there's a big difference. Let's try to define our relationship with God. I wonder what you are. Are you a fan or a follower? If most people were to ask you that, maybe you wouldn't see the difference at first and you would say, hey, they're both equally the same. No, they're not. And we're going to discover that. But I wonder which one you are. Are you just a fan or are you a follower? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? A lot of you in your minds right now, I'm sure you consider, well, following Jesus, that's what I do. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to be a follower. I don't want to just be a cheerleader, rah, rah, but I want to be a follower of Jesus. So we've got to... 
have an honest diagnosis of our relationship with God. Can I say your personal relationship with God needs to be under review today? Just like in football, they throw a flag. Why? Because the play is under review. Your personal relationship with God flagged is under review today. And, and it's so easy for us, isn't it, even right now, to, to just to kind of to throw that off and, and just to push that off of us again and say, well, goodness me, I know he's talking about that person because they need to hear this today because I know them. You know, they don't come. Well, yet they're only here because it's food Sunday. I know those kind of people. You know, they're just, just a fan. They're not even a fan. They're just here because it's easy, isn't it, to judge other people and make a diagnosis of someone else. Because guess what? I can judge Daniel but it doesn't require anything of me. Because what I judge him for, he's going to have to deal with. And it's easy, isn't it? Because we want to do things that doesn't require anything from us. But when the flag's thrown at our lives and the review is on us, that means some action is required. Something needs to take place in our lives. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the spouse beside you. We're not talking about the parent, the child. We're not talking about your neighbor, your brother, your sister. Man, I'm glad they're here to hear this. No, I'm glad you're here because you need to hear this. It's about our hearts and our lives. And it's about living for God. And there's a scripture that makes this really clear about fans and followers. Jesus' words, the words of Jesus, don't get mad with me. This is what he said in Matthew 7, verse 21 and 23. Jesus said these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, what day? When we all stand before God. Every one of us is going to have to stand before God and give an account for our lives. And, and for some, that's a fearful thought and a fearful moment. But for others, it should be a time of joy that you can stand there saying, God, I followed you and lived for you. But we're going to have to give an account. And many in that day, the Bible says, are going to stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, can you go back? Many are going to stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not, what, cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Verse 23, and Jesus, God will declare, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What? What? Those who called him Lord, Jesus said, some, he's going to say, who are you? Doesn't mean he doesn't know you, but it just means that your name hasn't been recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And he's going to say, I didn't know you, depart from me. You see, it doesn't matter if you've been brought up in church. If you have, great. I was brought up in church, thank God for it, but that's not what made me say. Because if that's the case, I better watch hanging out in the garage because I'm going to turn into a car. It doesn't render true with McDonald's because if you hang out too long at McDonald's, you are going to become a Big Mac. Anyone know what I'm talking about? But stay away from airplanes and airports because you're going to turn it. See, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. You know, paying your tithes doesn't make you a Christian. Volunteering in the church, it's more than that. What that is and what that paints the picture of, I believe, is a fan. A fan. The dictionary defines fan as this, an enthusiastic admirer. An enthusiastic admirer. Listen to this in page 22 of this book that I've been reading, and it's really cool. It says it this way about a fan. It says, it's the guy, a fan is the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt on and has a painted chest. 
He sits in the stands and cheers for his team. He's got a signed jersey hanging on his wall at home and multiple bumper stickers on the back of his car. But he's never in the game. He knows all about the players and he can rattle off all their latest stats. But he doesn't really know them. He yells and cheers, but nothing is really required of him. There is no sacrifice that he has to make. And the truth is, as excited as he seems, if his team that he is cheering on starts to let him down and has a few off-seasons, his passion will soon wane quickly. And after several losing seasons, you can expect him to jump off the fan wagon and to begin to cheer for another team. Why? Because all he is is an enthusiastic admirer. I think Jesus has a lot of fans. I think Jesus has a lot of people that are an enthusiastic admirer. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, you're cool. Yeah, yeah, you're awesome. Yeah, yeah, you're great. Those that cheer for him when everything is going well in their life, that's easy to do. It's easy to do when the kids are behaving themselves, come on, and the dogs are not running away, and, and just everything is, in life is great. Your boss has been nice to you. Yeah, yeah, God. Woo, What happens when the rubber hits the road? What happens when the kids aren't behaving themselves and the job is at threat and all these things? You know what most tend to do? Run away from God. Get mad at God. Get angry at God. Because that's a fan. What about those who, you know, they just want to sit in the stands and they cheer, but they're never willing to put on a uniform and to get in the game and help out? What about those who know all about Jesus, but truly have never really known Him? And throughout the Scriptures, we're going to discover that Jesus was never interested in having a fan club. If He would have, He would have been crowned King on that earth. But that wasn't what it was about. It wasn't about join the Jesus fan club. But that's too often what we've made church today. You know what most churches are today? Stadiums. We've made most churches today stadiums where all we do is come on and cheer on Jesus. And then we leave with no change. We leave the same way. And most maybe even forget him till next Sunday when we come back to the stadium and put on our suit and tie and put our Bible behind, under our arm, and we're ready for church. God bless us. Praise God. Hallelujah. And we come back into church. We want to come and cheer, but we have no interest in really truly following Him. Listen to this statement. Most want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. That's a fan. And you know, here's how we measure our lives. Well, am I a fan or a follower? How is my relationship with God? Here's the three ways. Are you ready? Here's the three ways that we, we the rules or, or the, whatever we want to line our lives up for. And here's what we do so often times. Here's the three ways that we line up our lives. Are you ready? Number one, by others. We compare ourselves to other people. And we look around and we say, well, at least I'm better than them. At least I'm this and I'm this. Have you ever noticed that when you compare yourself with someone, you always compare yourself with someone that you know what the answer is before you begin? Let me explain that. You don't go for someone who's the top of the class when you're comparing yourself. Because guess what? You're going to fall way short. So what do you do? You go for someone who's the worst. And then you look at your life and you say, well, I'm doing okay because they're worse than me. Anyone with that? You see, it's like having an orchestra. If an orchestra was to get ready and, and they were to be ready to perform... 
a trombone doesn't turn around to the violinist and says, could you give me a G on the violin so I can tune my trombone? And then the trombone doesn't begin to play and then this person and the flute then begins to tune off this. Could you imagine the noise that would happen with an orchestra or a band if everyone just took their tune off everyone else? Because instruments expand and contract with heat and they lose tune and this happens and that. Guitars need to be tuned every time you play them and pick them up. But could you imagine if everyone was just taking their tune off comparison from everyone else, what the noise would be? But what does the orchestra do? The orchestra goes to the piano and they they give a a sound on the piano and they give a note on the piano and then what do you hear? All over the orchestra you hear people tune into that one sound. You see, if you're going to compare yourself to anyone, you've got to compare yourself to Jesus. You've got to go to the source. And if we're comparing ourselves like that, man, we are falling way short. It's like someone who's sick and has a headache looking at someone that has cancer and saying, well, you're more sick than me, but they're sick too. May not be as bad, but they're still sick. Can you see how comparison can throw us off? What about this one by religion? A lot of people want to gauge their relationship, where they are with God, whether I'm a fan or a follower on my performance. Well, I go to church almost every Sunday. I put money in the offering. Granted, it's not maybe as much as I should, but at least I'm given some. I volunteer to help. I I say to him, if you ever need help, call me. But I've never really given anyone my number. But hey, you can call me if you need my help. I listen most of the time or almost all the time just to Christian radio. But you know what we're going to discover as we go through this series? We're going to realize it's not what we do that makes us a true follower, but it's who we are. It's who we are. Now, and now I believe that as a result of our relationship with God, that works will follow. But works follows faith. Faith produces works. Works does not produce faith. My performance coming to church does not produce a relationship with God. It doesn't make me saved. What's the last thing that we compare ourselves to? My family, the heritage. And I thank God today I can throw both hands in the air and brag about my family today because I've got everyone I'm sure in here beat when it comes to families. Because my family, uh, God has mightily used our family, and I don't say that lightly. All my family, especially on my dad's side, my dad's one of six. Every one of his brothers and sisters and their husbands and wives and their children and their children's children, every one of us are saved and working somewhere in the ministry. Somewhere around the world, in Australia, two of my cousins are in Australia, one of them's in Seattle. Loads of them are in Norwich, and we're here, and every one of us are involved in ministry. My sister and her husband lead the children's ministry, and I could just go on and on with the heritage we have. But you know what? I can't just one day rock up to church and say, my mom and dad are saved, they brought me up to church, and you know what? Now I'm saved. Thank God for my heritage, thank God, but that's not what saves me. It's not what brings me in. You know, I was reading a story this week when we were on the beach. Kelly and I were away in Panama this week. And I was just reading this story to Kelly. And I said, look at this. It was about a guy who'd brought his daughter up in church. And when she got of age, she just wandered off and rebelled and had nothing to do with church. And he was so brokenhearted. And he said this statement, I, but why did this happen? He went to a pastor and he said, I brought my daughter up in church. And the pastor said, that's the problem. You brought your child up in church. You didn't bring your child up in Christ. You brought your child in church, but you didn't bring your child up in Christ. Thank God for families. Thank God for heritage. Thank God that we look at. But you know what? Is that the rules that I'm going to gauge my relationship with God, comparing with others, my performance, my heritage? What about relationship? 
What about relationship? Here's where I got the title of this message for this week and it comes from this. What if you were to set up a lunch date this week with Jesus? You were to clear your calendar and say, Jesus, let's do lunch this week. And the sole purpose for you going to have lunch with him was to ask one question. Just one question. And your one question that you'd ask him was this. Jesus, would you define our relationship? Jesus, I'm asking you right now, how do you see us? What does our relationship look like? I wonder what the answer would be. I wonder if we're really to be honest with ourselves right now and we were to have that encounter with God and we were to say, I mean, Jesus, maybe what I see is maybe not what you see. So tell me, how do you see our relationship? I wonder what he would say. I wonder what he would say. In the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's the first four books of the New Testament, we see there was a number of lunch dates that people set up with Jesus. And from these lunch dates, we see the answer to that question. And and I think if we're honest enough today, we're going to see some answers in our lives as we look at other people's lunch date with Jesus. We're going to discover that perhaps we're more of a fan than a follower. And something needs to change in our life. Are you ready? Lunch date number one. Here it is. Nicodemus went for lunch with Jesus. It, actually, it wasn't lunch with Jesus. He went for a, a, actually a late night dinner, Nicodemus did. Because we'll see. If you would read with me, I'm going to read a few verses today. And, and it's from John 3, verse 1 through 15. And I'm going to read it. So just try and follow along with us today as we read a little bit more than I would normally read. But I, I, I just think it's important just to grasp a hold of this today. John 3, verse 1 through 15. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, what did he say? He said, teacher, he he respected Jesus. We're going to see how he came. It's important that you grab a hold of this. He said, rabbi, teacher, leader, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So what is he saying? You're God. You're you're somebody or something that's come from God. How do we know this? For no one can do the things that you've done and no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. So obviously Nicodemus has been following Jesus for a while. He knows about Jesus. Okay, verse 3. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he re-enter a second time into his mother's womb and be reborn? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say unto you, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit, born of God, Spirit, capitalized God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So notice this. Jesus has said you've got to be born again. Obviously something's happened because Nicodemus has gone, what, me? I'm this and I'm that. Because Jesus says, don't marvel that I have said that. He's answering a response of Nicodemus. He said, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell from where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus said unto him, You are the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things. Most assuredly I say unto you, We speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things, would you not believe? How would you, not, how would you believe then if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, even so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion and his death, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I didn't put it on there, but the next verse is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You know, in that story, in that account with Nicodemus, we see lunch date number one. Here's what we see. Are you ready? Is it a decision or is it a commitment? Is what I have with God, is it a decision or is it a commitment? Have I made a decision with no follow-up? You know, we talk about the salvation experience. It begins with a decision, but then it's an experience. It's lived out. It's to be carried out, to be a commitment that we live in our lives. Nicodemus is a well-respected religious leader who obviously, as we read, knows about Jesus. He's been watching Jesus. He respects Jesus. He recognizes that he is Jesus. He is a Messiah. He is of God. He is something special because no one could do all these things. But when does he come to Jesus? At night. Why does he come at night? Because he has too much to lose if he comes during the day. Because he realizes being a follower is going to cost him something. Jesus said to him, plain and simply, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand that statement. He, a born a second time? How can, I, how can all this? You see, he's been trained in the law. He thinks to abide by this and doing that and, and just making a decision after Christ is all that requires. And Jesus says, hold on a second. It's not just a decision, but it's totally given your life to me. It's like being born again, a new you, a total surrender, a total giving of your life to me. He can't get that. He can't grasp that. Because you know what that would mean for Nick? Is that okay if we call Nicodemus Nick? You know what that would mean for Nick today? Number one, he would lose his position. He would lose his respect, number two, from others around him. Number three, he would lose his source of income, his livelihood. Number four, he would lose his family and friends. Why? Because if he was going to stand up and make a commitment to God, he was going to have to denounce everything else that he followed in his life. And it was going to cost him something. Here's a question I want to pose to you today, and that is this. Has following Jesus cost you anything? Has following Jesus cost you anything? You know, I've followed Jesus for many years, and you know it's cost me a lot of people. It's cost me a lot of friends. But thank God, because I now realize they were never friends in the first place. It's cost me a lot of things. When I was a young person, I thought, man, you've got to give up this. And God. You see, too many people view Christianity as a list of do's and don'ts, but it's not. When you give your life to Christ, you don't want that anymore, and you don't want to do that anymore. But yet we're so afraid to give those things up and release those things because, man, I don't know. I'm telling you right now, to be truly a follower of Christ, you're going to have some people that are going to look at you strange. You're going to have some people that are going to dislike you and, and disfriend you on Facebook because you're too holy for them. You're just, you, you, you're, just, you're just too much for them. I wonder how many people with that question, I wonder how many of us that has happened to us lately. Oh, we want to be all politically correct and we want to say everything nice. We want everyone to be our friends. We want everything. Yeah, you can have that, but then you're making a decision for Christ, not making a commitment for Christ. You know, as we look at Christianity today, 
we've, we've almost made Christianity like an infomercial. We've made it like an infomercial. Salvation is like this infomercial on TV. We've all seen them. You know what? Something that can promise you the world, but just cost you shipping and handling. If you just cover the shipping and handling, you're going to be a millionaire. If you follow this, if you, it's almost that they want to say that you can have everything, but yet it costs you nothing. Is that not how we've presented salvation in the church today? While I was on the balcony in Panama City, I, I wrote an infomercial. Is that cool? A Christian infomercial. I wished I could have shot it and dressed all up and done it on screen, but I just didn't have time. But here's my Christian infomercial, okay? If you want to live forever... And you need a fresh start. Have I got just what you need? Your sins can be forgiven. You can have a life in heaven. No longer in hell. But wait, that's not all. It also includes, free of charge, a prosperous life. No more problems. Health and wealth. And all this just by making a simple decision today. Darling, so pick up that phone and order your gospel that will cost you nothing, yet offers you everything. Another message that's been preached through many pulpits today. Just give your life to Christ. It's going to cost you nothing because he paid the price. You have to do nothing. Just give your life to Just make a decision and that's it. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not about fans. He's about followers. It's more than a decision. It's a commitment. It's surrendering your life to God. And remember I said I'm not going to make many friends, but you know what? I want to make followers. And I love you enough today to tell you. You see, here's what salvation is. And, and we don't present this today, but here's what salvation is. Let me give you four things about salvation today. You ready? No forgiveness without repentance. Salvation, no salvation without surrender. There's no life without death. There's no believing without Committing, You see, we've labeled salvation as just being something so honky-dory. And what we're doing is we're raising up fans instead of followers. And as I said, I told you some of this stuff would be tough, but it's the truth. If you want to be more than a fan, which is an enthusiastic admirer, you've got to become a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Nicodemus must have left because there's no more record of him in that chapter. We don't read any more of him in John 3. It's not like he says, Jesus, I'm willing to pay the price. It's almost like he just slips off into the darkness again and he hides. Why? Because he wasn't prepared to make... He knew who Jesus was. He knew that he was the Son of God, but he wasn't prepared to make the commitment. He just had a decision and he knew, but he wasn't willing to make that commitment. How sad, how sad, how sad. But you know what we do read of Nicodemus later? In John chapter 7 and verse 51 and verse 52, the Sanhedrin, which were the religious leaders, they were trying to find a reason to silence Jesus. They needed an accusation to charge him. And you know what Nicodemus, that's Nicodemus in verse 51 that stands up and he says in the middle of everyone, he said, hold on a second, you're trying to do something. But does not our Lord judge a man? Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? He's defending God. And the people around him, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? They were making fun of him. They were ridiculing him because he made a stand. Can you see Nicodemus that way? He had a decision of Christ, but he didn't have a commitment. And he's sitting there and they're saying, and they're trying to find accusation. And he's thinking to himself, oh my God, I wish, I hope someone else is going to stand up and defend Jesus. I hope someone else. Then finally at the end, he says, hold on a second. Does our law allow us to do that? Kind of made a stand, got some open ridicule. But you know what? I believe that something took place in that man's life and in his heart. 
that he said, no more am I going to be ashamed of Christ, but I'm going to live for him. How do you know that? Because the next time we read of Nick is John 19, verse 39. Jesus has been crucified. He's in a borrowed tomb. And what happens? And Nicodemus, and notice, just in case you didn't get it, he was the one who came to Jesus by night. Don't you love that in there? That he was the one that had made a decision, but he hadn't made a commitment. But now something shifted. He came also. And what did he do? He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys. He brought about a hundred pounds worth of stuff. I mean, great expense that he brought. Something extremely costly, but more than just costly in monetary sense. There was no longer any chance of him hiding his affections for God. It's now all out in the open. The time when most had abandoned Jesus. Oh, they were the ones that said, we'll stay with you through thick and thin. But when the rubber hits the roads, they're all gone. Now Nicodemus, he's the one that's stepping in. And he's the one that's making that public declaration. What? This was the Messiah. This was the one. He didn't at the beginning, but he eventually did. Now he's a follower of God. Later in Christian tradition, it states that Nicodemus in the first century, was martyred for his stand that he made for God. He gave his life for the commitment he made. I wonder today if you've made a decision for Jesus. Because that's what fans do. Or if you made a commitment and you're in relationship with him. Because one who once followed in darkness is now following Jesus in the light. Here's another lunch date. In Luke chapter 7, we see the story of a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus to his house. Look what it says in Luke 7, 36 through 40. And it says this, there was one of the Pharisees, his name was Simon, asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. The Bible says she was a sinner. Can I tell you what? She was a prostitute. She was an outcast. She was a woman of the night. And she comes to Jesus and, what, and, as, and stood at the feet, at his feet, behind him weeping. And she began to what? She began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, Simon, saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Notice this. Simon says to himself, but Jesus responds to him. Jesus hears his thoughts. Jesus responds to his thoughts. And Jesus said to him, and he answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And I'm telling you, Jesus has something to say to him and you need to see that later. But what does Simon say in verse 39? If this man is really a prophet, he would have known what type of woman she was. You see, here's lunch date number two. Are you ready for this? Do you know him or do you know about him? Do you know him or do you know about him? Simon was an educated man in the law. He knew all these things, but you know what? He knew Jesus to be a good person, but he really did not know who Jesus was. How do we know this? Because Jesus presents next, the next passage or part of that passage. Jesus says to him, you know what? When I came to your house, you didn't wash my feet. 
That was a custom back then that anytime someone came to the house, they would, their feet would be washed. They had open-toed shoes. Their feet would be dusty and dirty. They would wash their feet. But guess what? For Simon to bend down and wash the feet of Jesus, he would have become, had to become what? A servant to God. He didn't recognize him as that. He knew him as a great person, but he didn't know him as Messiah, Savior, God. Jesus goes on to say, neither did you kiss me when I came in and neither did you anoint my head with oil. But this woman has done all of these things. Isn't it amazing that the one who should have known didn't know who was there, but yet the one who everyone said, oh, she would never know, she recognized and knew. I wonder today, do you know him or do you just know of him? Oh, we can quote the scriptures, we come to church, we do all this. Oh, I know Jesus, I wear t-shirts with Jesus on it and all these kind of things, huh? I remember at Bible college, Bible college was one of the most dangerous times of my life. Yes, I said it right, while I was at Bible college, it was one of the most dangerous times of my life. Why? Because I nearly lost my way. Because we were in the Bible every day, we were studying from it, we were reading Christian books, we were doing Christian homework, and guess what? I lost almost my personal relationship with God because I got so into the knowledge of God that I failed to really know God. I want to tell you something today. Knowledge is great, but knowledge isn't intimacy. Knowledge isn't intimacy. It can lead to it, but it isn't. It's important to have knowledge, don't get me wrong. But we can have knowledge without intimacy. Let me give you an example. Kelly and I, we, we can go out places. I, I can order off the menu now pretty much for Kelly. Kelly can order for me. If she's not there, I know what she wants. Give me a water with extra lemon. I, I, I know if she's... Unless it's McDonald's, Kelly's going to order fried shrimp wherever she goes. In Panama City, ask Kelly where's the best fried shrimp. Because every restaurant we went to, she ate fried shrimp, fried shrimp, fried shrimp, fried shrimp, fried shrimp. It's just Kelly. I know her favorite color. It's green. I know her favorite flowers. There's tulips. There's a lot of things I know of Kelly. But guess what? That knowledge does not mean that our marriage is going to be great. Because that doesn't mean automatically that there's going to be intimacy because I just know about her. Can you see how many times we think, well, I know this, 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 and this, so guess what? I'm going to score tonight. We're going to have a good time. I ordered the right drink. No, no, no. It doesn't always spell out that way. Why? Because knowledge is not always intimacy. Come on, knowledge is not always intimacy. You can know everything about your spouse, but you can have no intimate relationship with each other. Same with God. I kind of think it's funny. I think sometimes God plays with it a little bit because we talk about you can have knowledge, but it doesn't mean intimacy. And then the best way to define our relationship with God is the word know, where we kind of get our word knowledge from. But look what it says in Genesis 4 verse 1. It said, and Adam knew his wife. The Bible speaks of when a man knew a woman or to know his wife meant the level of intimacy. That word is yada. Yada, 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 yada. It's yada. So to know completely, to be completely known. 
And that word is known throughout the entirety of the Bible and it describes also our relationship with God. If you would read Psalms 139, David says these words in verse 1 through 6. Psalms 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched my heart and you know me. Try me and see. You know my uprising. You know my... What was he saying? God, you want to know me and you do know me intimately. That's the relationship. Not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge. And I think how awesome the same word that God used uses for the intimacy between a man and a wife is the same word that he uses for the intimacy that he desires to have with each one of us. Instead of identifying myself as a follower because I know about Jesus, maybe it's time that we start understanding that I'm a follower because I know Jesus. Simon knew about him but didn't know him. But the lady who was the sinner She showed the great contrast. I wonder who you are in the story. I wonder if you're Simon, the one that has the knowledge. Or if you're the sinner who has knowledge of who he is. Big difference. When's the last time you poured out your life before him? It's not about knowing him, about him rather, but it's about knowing him. Last lunch date today. We're going to look at some more maybe next week. But another lunch date was not with an individual, but with an entire crowd. In Luke 14, verse 25 and 26, reading from the New Living Translation, a large crowd was following Jesus. I put in parentheses there, they were following Jesus. That's what they did, but that's not who they were. Just because they followed doesn't mean that they were followers of Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciples, if you want to be a true follower of me, you must hate everyone else by comparison. King James Version says, if anyone wants to come after me and does not hate his father, his mother, his brother, sister, it goes on, they're not worthy of me. That's strong, that's strong. You must hate everyone else by comparison, your father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciples. Now, you you know... When you read stuff like that, it would be so easy for me and you to say, come on, Jesus, I mean, you're taking it a little bit far now. I mean, come on, you've got a whole crowd, and in the middle of the crowd, you turn around and say to them, okay, here's the deal. If you want to follow me, you've got to start hating your family. And you've got to start hating those around. And at first glance, you could think that kind of contradicts because after all, the message of the Bible is about loving those and, and being good to those. And so, so there's got to be more here because we know the dictionary definition of hate means to dislike something intensely. It means to have feelings of intense hostility towards. So obviously, that's not what Jesus wants in our life. So what is it? I think the New Living Translation, that's why I read it, presents it really good in Luke 14, 26. Because he says you've got to hate by comparison. The contemporary English version says you've got to love me more. Love me more. You see, here's lunch date number three that we've got to look at our lives and say, am I a fan or a follower? Is this, is Jesus one of many or is he my one and only? Are you and Jesus exclusive or... Can you date other people? You see, fans will try to make Jesus one of many. Even some fans will make Jesus the first of many when Jesus defines relationship as this and he makes it clear. I don't want to be one of many. I don't want to be the first of many, but I want to be your one and only. Let me give you an example of this. You can have a wallet. 
And in a wallet, I know this is kind of more old school now, and if you've got still pictures in your wallet, you're probably really old. And, and we still love you, but you're kind of old. And, um, but you know what most people used to have when you opened a wallet? There was pictures in there. Pictures of your kids, pictures of your husband, your wife, your family. So just picture your wallet right now that you were to open it and you're madly and passionately in love with your husband or your wife and, and you've got a picture of them right there and you're proudly showing it to everyone and everyone's like, that's nice, but what do people do when they take pictures? They turn it over. And as they turn it over, on the back side is the girl that you dated before you got married. And then on the other side is the one that you dated before her and then on the back side is the one. So in your wallet, you've got a picture, yes, of your wife, but then you've got pictures of... Everyone else that you dated up to your wife. How many knows that if you carried that in your wallet, you're going to be in problems? Come on, you ain't going to be knowing your wife for a long time or knowing your husband. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, if you've been paying attention, you know what we're talking about. But you know what we can argue and say, but you don't understand, sweetheart. You're the first picture, and I love you because if I didn't love you so much, I would have married that other person, but I don't love them. They're, they mean nothing to me because you're the one I love, and you're the... Well, what would they say? Well, why do you have them there then? Take out the wallet of your life. Jesus may be on the front, but turn it over. Turn it over. Oh, but Jesus, you don't understand. You're the most important. You're the number one. You're this and that. Jesus doesn't want to share your affection. And following him requires your whole heart. Let me prove this with four questions. And I've got to shut up really quick. Four questions. You ready? Number one. Here's how you prove it if Jesus is your one and only. What do you sacrifice your money for? What is it you give your money for? What is it? If if people were to look at your checkbook right now, I wonder what the thing of greatest value would be to you. Because I'm telling you, you put your money where your greatest value is. Listen to this. Kyle Eidelman says this in his book, Not a Fan. He says this. He says, as a pastor, I've done some financial counseling with many people over the years. And I have noticed a common way that fans talk about their finances. Not followers, but fans. He says, as I sit down and talk with people about their budgets and about their lives, a fan is going to ask this question, well, pastor, what do you think is the most I can spend on my house? But when it comes to giving to God and his house, they ask this question, does God want me to give, does God want me to give to him out of my net income or my gross income? In other words, here's what they say. What's the most I can spend on my house and the least I can give to God? How you'll spend your money tells a story of what matters to you the most. Look at question number two. When you're hurt, where do you go for comfort? Where do you go? Do you go to a parent? Do you go to a spouse? Do you go to your refrigerator? Do you go to alcohol? Do you go to drugs? Do you go to friends? Where do you go when you're hurting the most? Painful painful experiences that we go through in our life can often reveal what we are truly following. A lost job, a relationship ends, test results not good. Where do you turn? Where do you go? Is he one of many or is he the one and only? Question number three, what disappoints you or frustrates you the most? What is it that disappoints your life the most and frustrates your life the most? You know, for most of you, the answer is going to be something like LSU or a sports team. 
It's really sad that we're getting ready to kick off football season and my prayers are already amping up. And you know what my prayers are every Saturday is this, God help LSU win. And it's not because I want them to have a winning record. It's not because I want them to go undefeated. If they do, then good. If they don't, then good. It's okay. It's going to be all right. Life still goes on. But you know the reason why I pray that? I pray that on Saturday because it's going to affect church on Sunday. It's really sad, but it's the truth. People don't come. They're miserable. They're depressed. And if they do come, they might as well have not come. Because they're sad and miserable. Listen to them when they come in. Can't believe they did that. Can't believe that. Why? Because the greatest frustration and disappointment of their life is something that really doesn't matter, but yet it's taken years off of their life. I wonder what's our biggest disappointments and frustrations. Question number four. Got to move on. What, do you, what really gets you excited? If someone was to say to you, wow, he really gets excited about that, what is it? Kyle writes in this book that one day he's watching a football game and his daughter sees him jump up when his team scores a touchdown and wins the game. And his daughter said to him these words, Dad, I have never, ever seen you more excited about anything else than that. He said it rocked him right into the heart because he thought, my daughter says that she has never seen me more excited than a football game and I'm a pastor of a church. And all the great things that God has done. And he said, it really caused me to evaluate my life and say, God, maybe I'm more than a, of a fan than a follower. God, maybe you're just one of many. And you're not my one and only. You see, all those things that we mentioned are, are fine and good. But listen to me, they have the potential to become a type of mistress that will rob God of your love and your whole life. Jesus makes it clear with Luke 14 with the crowd. He says to follow him means to follow him alone. He's not up for sharing us. And one more statement and I'm going to close. And you've got to see this because it's so important today. Look at this. Understand this. When Jesus explains that he will not share your affection or devotion with anyone else. He isn't just saying how he wants to be loved by you. But listen to me. He's making it clear also how he wants to love you. Think about that. He doesn't want to love you less than that other person because he loves them more because they're the first picture in his wallet. Jesus wants to love you like you are the only person on the face of this earth. That's how much love he has for every one of us. You see, he's asking something from us that he has already given towards each one of us. That he's made available to us. So today, I wonder what lunch date is yours. I wonder what Jesus would say to you. I wonder if it's more of a decision than a commitment. I wonder if it's more of a knowledge than a really knowing. I wonder if it's more of a what? One of many instead of one and only. The only one who knows that is you and God. And what did we begin with today? Do an honest diagnosis of your life. Because being a follower is more than a title. It involves a lifestyle. To live for God. I don't want to be an enthusiastic admirer. I'll just be honest with you. I want to be a follower of God. Would you stand to your feet with us this morning? I want to be a follower of God. A follower of God. I realize time, time has gone today.
But if you just give me a couple more moments of your time. How would that lunch date really go? I love you, Jesus, but. I love you, Jesus, and. I love you, Jesus, when. That's what most of us would have to be honest about. And here's what we're going to do today. My hand's up before I even make the appeal. Here's what we're going to do today. I want to ask in this house, how many people in this house are willing to say, God, I want to be a follower of you. Tired of being a fan. Tired of just having a head knowledge and not a heart realization. I'm tired of you just being one of many. I'm tired when things don't go well, that you're put to the back of the line and everything else becomes more important. But God, I want today to say that you're the most important thing in my life. I maybe don't understand it all. I don't, maybe don't get it all. But today I want to give my life totally to God. Come on, if that's you all over this place. You know what I said at nine o'clock? I said this at nine o'clock. If you've been saved for more than 10 years, I think you just need to get saved all over again anyway, because you know what? It's probably stale and old. You need a fresh encounter with God, a fresh experience with God. I don't want to stand before God and say, Lord, Lord. And he says, who are you? I want to know without a shadow of a doubt that he knows my name and not only knows my name, but he's willing to use me. Come on, if you want to be a follower of God, maybe for the first time you're giving your life to Christ. Praise God. Maybe you rededicate and whatever it may be. Come on, my hands up. Keep those hands up. I want to pray for you today. Would you pray with me? Would you repeat this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I realize today that you desire an exclusive relationship with me. God, I don't want you to be one of many. I want you to be my one and only. God, I make more than a decision today. I commit my life totally to you. God, I don't want to just know of you. But I want to know you in a real intimate way. God, I pray today, come into my life. Change me. Transform me. Make me new. I don't want to be a fan. But I want to be your follower. In Jesus' name. Amen. We would like to thank you for listening to this message today. We pray that your life has been challenged by what you've heard, but we also know it will be changed as you put God's Word into effect. At HeartSeas Family Life Church, our doors are always open to help. If you need any more information or just a friend to listen, we are here. Call us at 225-274-1607 or email us at pastorp at hflc.us. Remember, put God first in your life and everything you do will prosper. We look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.